This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank You again this morning. Thank You for bringing us here to this place, giving us this time to join together in corporate study, worship, prayer. Lord, thank You for the privilege being able to enter into Your presence, know You, experience You, love You, to be loved by You. Lord, as always, we ask for Your grace here, Your enablement. I ask that You enable me to deliver this message faithfully. Please grant clarity. Please grant accuracy so that You are correctly represented. Please enable all of us here in this place to hear Your truth. Make it effective, we pray, in the hearts of each individual here. May it be for Your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. If you would turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we continue our study here in the book of Matthew. Um, An awesome truth. By His stripes, we are healed. (laughs) Salvation through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That is, He has died in the place of sinners. Not only died, he, He lived earning the righteousness that um, we lacked, the righteousness that we need to bring us into a uh, relationship, right relationship with our Creator. Jesus lived and His own testimony, which was true, His own testimony was that He, he said, I, always, I do always those things that please the Father. He, he never, ever offended his father. Not once. Not one sin. Not one offense. He never ever made a mistake in his whole life. He fulfilled perfectly the righteousness, the righteous standard of God in our place. And he suffered. He suffered physically, and He suffered the outpouring of the wrath of God. The wrath of God saved up, stored up, accumulated, think about that, accumulated for all the sins of all time of those whom He would save. 
And Jesus drank that cup. That is, he bore the punishment of his Father. Though he himself never committed one offense, he bore the punishment for the sins of many. So that we might be saved. So that we could enter into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Another way of saying it is this. He came to set us free. He came to liberate us. Liberate us from the bondage of sin. And I often think about, uh, you know, thinking along those lines, I often think about uh, the nation of Israel when they were delivered Old Testament Israelites, when they were delivered out of Egypt, probably everybody here knows the story. God sent, uh, and it's a little different, by the way, than the Cecil B. DeMille's version, but uh, God sent Moses into Israel with a mandate, into Egypt, rather, with a mandate for Pharaoh. Let my people go. So that, there's a so that to it. So that they may worship me. Now, that's, that's what Moses went to Pharaoh demanding. Let us go, set us free, so that we may worship our God. And there's a picture there, a type, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would come to do hundreds of years later. Come to free people from bondage, not, not, well, yes, we benefit from that, but not, not just so that we can be free, but so that we can be free in order that we may worship Him. And in fact, I would say there's really no freedom apart from that. If, if we're not engaged in genuine worship of the true and living God, our Creator, then we're in bondage yet to sin and self. So He came to set us free, to set us free, to liberate us, to worship. And the, the essence of, of, of this worship is being brought into right communion with God, restored to right fellowship. In other words, we don't just... And, and I don't I use the word just. It sounds like I'm minimizing it. I don't mean to minimize this point. I just want to make another point. We, we don't just praise Him and say, God, how great and how awesome and how magnificent You are. We do that. Hopefully we do that. That's, that's part of it. That's, that's an essential part of it. And we do. We, we, we declare His, His greatness. We give glory to Him. Not to us, like we read in the Psalms. Not to us, but unto You. Be all glory. But we don't just verbalize that and, 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 and praise Him. We enjoy Him. And that's, that's a part of the worship. We're, we are brought into right relationship with Him so that we can enjoy His presence. To, to be truly free from the bondage of sin and self and, and sin. And, you know, you've heard me say it many times. Um, 
is, is, is just rebellion. The, the essence of sin is rebellion. Rebellion against God. Now, that's, that's the state uh, that we exist in apart from Christ. We, we enter into this world as sinners, rebels. Every precious baby that we see that comes along enters into this world and they are precious. But they're also rebels. They're born rebels. That's how we come into this world. And someone who is truly set free from the bondage of sin, that rebellion in self, enters into fellowship with God. The enjoyment of the presence of God. That's why Jesus came to restore us to right relationship with Him. Now, thank God. Thank God. Um, that it is true. For the believer, we don't have to endure the suffering of God's wrath, right? In other words, thank God we're delivered from hell. But again, that's, that's not all of it. Yes, we're delivered from hell. Yes, we're delivered from the penalty of our sins. But we're delivered to fellowship with God. Biblical salvation is all about reconciliation with God. And where there's no reconciliation, where there's no fellowship, where there's no enjoyment of the presence of God, there's no salvation. There's no true religion. Look at Matthew 9 uh, here with me. And and let me just give you a little reminder of the setting here. We're going to start reading in verse 14. Um, Pick up there with a complaint from the disciples of John the Baptist. Um, So so we need to understand what the setting is here. This, This is following Jesus' call of Matthew. He sees Matthew, also called Levi. He sees Matthew sitting at... uh, at his booth, collecting taxes. Matthew was a tax collector. And in verse, verse 9, Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. And as we talked about before, Matthew left all. He forsook all. He arose and followed him. He literally uh, walked off the job here to go and follow Christ. And Matthew becomes an instant evangelist. <laughs> and he... he as we said last week, the first thing he wants to do, uh, number one for himself, is fellowship with Jesus. So he, he, has a, he has a feast at his house for Jesus, and he invites all of his fellow tax collectors and sinners. He's only been called short time, and he's instantly engaged in evangelism. Isn't that amazing? Number one, he desires fellowship with the Lord. And number two, he wants others to enter in that fellowship as well. So this is the setting. It's in the house of Matthew, a feast that he's giving for Jesus. They are joined by many other tax collectors and sinners. Sinners, just uh, in this context, um, everybody's a sinner, but in, in this context, the, the idea is the, the unsavory people of society, uh, especially um, viewed that way by the Pharisees. 
the Pharisees consider themselves to be the elite, the religious elite. They're, they're head and shoulders above the rest in a spiritual sense. They're, they're better than. And people who want commit themselves to the religious practices, the traditions of the Pharisees, are viewed as sinners. Sinners. And so that's the language Matthew, in his account here, uses. Verse 10. Jesus sat at the table, or sat at table in the house. That's Matthew's house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. They are seated, or reclining rather, probably not seated at a table like we do today, but reclining and eating together, this fellowship. Tax collectors, sinners, in fellowship with Christ. And the Pharisees were indignant. And in verse 11, the Pharisees saw it and said to his disciples, to Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They consider themselves to be righteous. They consider their, uh, their form of religion, their manner of living to be the, the right way, the, the way of righteousness. Here Jesus is. Uh, he's, he's fast becoming a, a popular rabbi. And uh, he's not living the standard set by the Pharisees. In fact, he's not living the standard that they suppose to be established by Scripture. Let me, let me give you one example of that uh, from Proverbs 23.20. Do not mix with wine bibbers or the gluttonous eaters of meat. There are words of wisdom for the godly there. Do not mix with gluttons, <laughs> right? And drunkards. Now, in the view of the Pharisees, that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is violating that. And, and let me be clear, I'm, I'm, I'm meaning a according to their understanding of it, their interpretation of it. All right, let's just be blunt. According to their perversion of it, Jesus is violating that. And so they're accusing Him of immorality. You're supposed to be a teacher, a leader, one who guides people into the way of righteousness, and you yourself are not living it, you're fellowshipping with tax collectors and sinners. How can this be? How can, they say to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds, like we talked about last week, verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then, verse 13, He gives them the quote from Hosea, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not Sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came for those who are sick. There's, there's a qualification for being saved. You've got to be lost. In order to be resurrected, you've got to be dead. In order to be healed, you've got to be sick. 
In order to be found, you've got to be lost. In order to repent, you've got to be a sinner. Jesus is plainly saying, isn't He? I didn't come for everybody. That's essentially, I'm paraphrasing, that's essentially what He's saying to them. I didn't come for you because you are righteous and I came for the unrighteous. I didn't come for you because you are well and I came for the sick. Well people don't need a physician. Now, let me, let me, again, that's a paraphrase. Now, let me modify that just a little bit more for clarification. Jesus is saying to them, the well don't need a physician, the sick need a physician. I came for the sick. I did not come for you because you think you are well. I came for sinners. I came to cause sinners to repentance. And you think you are righteous. So there, there's, again, there's a qualification for salvation through Jesus Christ. You must understand that you're sick. You must understand that you are not righteous. You must understand that you are lost. You must understand that your your soul is in peril. You need to be rescued. You need a Savior. That's what Jesus is saying. I came for those who need to be rescued. I came for those in bondage. I came to set... Free, people who are bound, not people who are free. They have no need of that. Verse 14. Then the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist that's referring to, then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now these verses, I want to just kind of... um, Deal with them in two two main points here. The first one is this 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 question about uh, or this contrast in fasting and feasting, right? Fasting and feasting. Jesus is approached by the disciples of John, 
Now, I pres- let me say this. I presume these are, are, are godly men. John comes, John the Baptist, preaching righteousness, preparing the way of the Lord. He's preaching a baptism of repentance, commanding all people everywhere to, uh, the Jews, that is, all people in the nation of Israel, to, to repent, be baptized, baptism of repentance, because the kingdom of God is at hand. Messiah is coming. The coming of the kingdom is near. And these are men who apparently have, have dedicated their lives to following John. That is, they believe his message. They, they believe the message of God. So we've, we've got a mixture here. of hypocrites in the, in the form of the Pharisees and committed godly men, at least I, I think that's a safe assumption, in the form of the disciples of John. That's interesting because uh, now Matthew just mentions that it's the disciples of, of John that asked the question, um, but if you read uh, Mark's account and Luke's account, you'll, you'll see that the disciples of the Pharisees are criticizing here as well, and they are in on this. So it's almost like um, the disciples of John, perhaps, are getting a little carried away into the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are, look at the righteous life we are living and look at this man who fellowships with tax collectors and sinners. And it's almost like the, the disciples of John are standing back and saying, you know, they've got a point. Because they were ascetic. John, Jesus Himself said of John, He came neither eating or drinking. You know, in other words, He was far from being a glutton. Or a drunkard, lived isolated in the wilderness. Many speculate today that he was an Essene, um, a uh, an ascetic group that lived in the Quamran area. You know, you've heard of the uh, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. That's that th- those were the the Essenes were the group that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, and they they lived in caves and they studied the Scripture and they copied faithfully the Scripture. But they lived an ascetic lifestyle. They, they didn't have microwaves and riding lawnmowers and uh, you know all of the luxuries that everybody else had. They cut themselves off to a great degree from society so that they could be totally dedicated to a righteous uh, manner of life. Well, whether or not John wasn't a scene. He was an ascetic. Like I say, the Scripture tells us he separated himself. He lived in the wilderness. He lived a life that uh, probably most of us wouldn't, uh, wouldn't enjoy too much. So here you have two groups, the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John, both living this kind of um, visible, outward form of righteousness. Now, again, presumably for two different reasons. I mean, we, we, we assume from what we know here in the Scripture, from Jesus' own testimony many times, that the Pharisees t- 
totally wrong motives. Now, they pervert the law. They put other people under burdens that they themselves won't even carry. And their motives are just totally, totally bad. But, John the Baptist, doing God's will. His life is committed to doing the will of God. And presumably, uh, his disciples are following that example. And so the question is regarding a certain religious practice, that of fasting. And they raise the question, why do we and the Pharisees fast often? That's a part of our, that's a part of our, our, uh, piety, our pious living. We, we are committed to godly living. One way that manifest is we fast often. Now, interestingly, in the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, which both these groups would, uh, at least give lip service to. God required one fast. It was the annual fast on the Day of Atonement. But we know from their own testimony here, uh, from the testimony of Scripture, that the Pharisees, at least many of them, were fasting twice a week. And taking great... Now, that's not wrong to do, but, but they were taking great pride in that. And other things that they were doing. And this, this is that kind of, of uh, commitment to religious activity was viewed as necessary. And it, and it was thought to be um, a part of being committed to holiness, living for God. So they want to know, why do we fast and you and your disciples do not? Well, uh, Jesus answers and he gives, he deals with two things here. First of all, uh, he tells them basically, you're not properly discerning the times or understanding who I am, who Jesus is. Verse 15. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? That's an astounding statement. I'm going to show you why in just a minute. But what he's saying is, fasting, that, that's afflicting oneself. You know, for spiritual, at least if you're doing it under the right motives, for spiritual reasons. You, you deny the body food. And, and I think, um, not to put any uh, uh, laws on anybody here, but it's just I, I hear people today talking about fasting from different things. Uh, especially when the season of Lent rolls around. As far as I can tell in the Scripture, fasting is always abstaining from food. Now, I'm not saying you can't take that principle and apply it somewhere else. I, I can't, you know, I can't judge that. But, but I do know this. It's definitely abstaining from food. And sometimes they would uh, abstain from food and water. That's fasting. I'm going to deny my body food for X amount of time, wherever, whatever it is. And I presume since the Pharisees fasted twice a week, uh, it was probably a 24-hour period, I assume. Um, so two days a week, they denied themselves the pleasure of eating. They denied 
themselves sustenance of food. Jesus says that's a sign of mourning, which they knew. You know, you're, if you're, again, if you're doing it for the right attitude, you're crying out to God or for some spiritual reason, you're, you're acknowledging by fasting, I'm a sinner, I'm in need of your help. You're denying the, 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 uh, the needs of the body, the desires of the flesh, so that you can focus on God and the things of God. And there's a place for that. But, Jesus says in verse 15, how can they do that? In other words, how can they mourn? How can they afflict themselves and, and be in a state of mourning? The friends of the bride, he uses this analogy. You've got the, the bridegroom and his groomsman, right? Best man and the groomsman. How can the groomsman be in mourning when the bridegroom is with them? Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? No. Why? Because this is a time of celebration. He's telling them, you're not, just, you're not properly discerning the times, for one thing. You, you don't know where we're at in this thing. And they don't know that because they don't understand who Jesus is. You don't understand the times and you don't understand who I am. Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. What should have happened when Christ entered the world, and it did happen to some extent, but what should have happened uh, across the board, celebration, rejoicing, feasting, because the bridegroom is in our presence. God, John says, John 1.14, the Word who was in the beginning and who was with God and was God, pitched His tent among us. That is, God just brought His very presence right in among us. That's reason for celebration. (laughs) That's reason for joy. That's what we lost in the fall. Adam and Eve sinned and man is separated from God. Now, in Christ, the very presence of God comes right into the realm of mankind. The Creator walks among His creatures. Still God, truly God, and yet also truly man. Let me give you just a couple of references here. Isaiah 62.5 For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now, in Isaiah 62.5, God, through the mouth of Isaiah, uses this analogy of bridegroom and bride. And in the analogy puts himself as, refers to himself as the bridegroom. Just as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So in, in that metaphor, God is the bridegroom, Israel is the bride, and God is saying, just like 
A groom rejoices over his bride. I'm going to rejoice over you, my people. Yahweh, the Old Testament, He's the God, the living God creator, but as, as known in the Old Covenant, God of the Jews, God of Abraham, God of um, Isaac and Jacob, refers to Himself as the bridegroom. In Hosea 2, verses 19 and 20, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in, in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. Again, Yahweh, God, Creator, the living God, uses that analogy of marriage. I will betroth you to me. In other words, he's the, he's the groom. He's the bridegroom. God. God is the bridegroom. And His people are the bride. And here Jesus is in Matthew 9 saying, the problem with mourning at this point is the bridegroom is here. God with us. <laughs> I, I think he's, he's uh, well, at least implying, although I think it's a strong implication, I think he's, he's really pretty clear. It, this is a claim to deity. Jesus is claiming to be God. Psalm 1611, the psalmist writes, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus is saying, you, you're, not, you're not understanding the times. You're not understanding who I am. This is not a time for mourning. Because the bridegroom is here, you're in the presence of the bridegroom, meaning you're in the presence of God. This is a time for fullness of joy. And he goes on to say, there's, there's coming a time when they'll mourn. They'll mourn when I'm gone. Again, verse 15. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no. It's a time of celebration, rejoicing, feasting like Matthew and the other tax collectors and sinners are recognizing. This is a time for a feast. We're in the presence of the bridegroom. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. When he's no longer in their presence, physically he seems to mean here, um, then there's the sense in which that's, that's going to be a difficult time, a sad time, a time for affliction, a time for mourning till He returns. Now, so that's, that's the first part of His answer. You're, you're, you're not properly discerning the times and you're not understanding who I am. Here's the second part. You cannot mix the old with the new. Verse 16. I'm going to admit to you up front, this part, at least to me, gets more difficult than verse 15. I'll try to explain that as we go. 
You can't mix the old and the new. Remember the question. They're saying, look, um, the, the disciples of the Pharisees fast. That, that's a legitimate... I want to make that clear too. That's a legitimate religious practice at this point. Although God didn't... He didn't command them to fast twice a week or, or whatever it was. They were only commanded to do uh, a fast once a year. But nevertheless, uh, fasting was a le- legitimate religious practice... Uh, they're, they're not asking him about some of the uh, extremes that the Pharisees would go to. At least, at least it's not recorded here. Uh, just fasting. And Jesus, in his response, says, "You're not understanding where we're at. You're not understanding who I am. And besides, by the way, you, you don't mix old and new." Verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth. On an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins. Or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Okay, let's deal quickly with the analogies, the metaphors here that he uses and then we'll try to unpack them with God's help. Of course, obviously. <clears throat> Verse 16, no one puts, and this one's simple enough on the surface, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. In other words, if you've got a tear, you've got, you got a, a, an old garment that's, that's been worn, and, and it's, uh, it's essentially done all of the stretching it's going to do. Um, you got a you got a hole, you got a tear. You don't take a, a a brand new piece of garment and patch that hole with it. Jesus says, if you do, it just it just makes the whole thing worse because the new piece of garment has not stretched or contracted yet. What's what's going to happen is when it does, when it starts to uh, shrink, rather. Uh, when it when it shrinks, it's it's going to pull the old garment and make the tear worse. So you, so you're patching it up in order to fix it, right? That's the idea behind it. And I know we don't. This is foreign, at, at least to people my age and younger. I'm going to confess to you um, because we we don't do this. You know, I mean, when you when you're got a hole in something, um, it either goes in the trash or to Goodwill or something like that, and you go to Walmart and buy a new one, right? Um, but they used to patch up clothes. I can even, even I can even, as uh, um, even at my young age, I I can remember. Now that wasn't a joke right there. But <laughs> I can even remember as a kid getting shoes repaired and boots repaired. I don't know if that actually happens today or not. You used to do it though. But Jesus says you 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 try to patch this garment up and you just make it worse. Because the the new garment that it that's not hasn't shrunk yet, it's not a good match for the old, and and it will ruin ruin. It's just going to make the tear worse when it begins to shrink. That's easy to understand, right? Uh, the analogy. And then verse seventeen, he gives the same truth in a different metaphor. This would be a little more foreign to us, of course, even even than patching clothes. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins. Because they didn't have, um, you know, 
the, the uh, wine bottling company down the street, uh, like, like we have in our day, um, they put wine into skins. And again, uh, skin is, is tanned or, or whatever process they put it through. It does all of its expanding. Uh, and they, they pour it, put the, put the, as Jesus says, new wine into new wineskins. They, they kind of do their expanding together. But you wouldn't take an old wineskin that's done all of the expanding it's going to do. So it's an animal skin. You've been, you've been keeping wine in it. You've been using it to drink from. But it's old. You've been using it a long time. And it's, it's done all, that skin has done all the expanding it's going to do. So he's saying you wouldn't pour new wine, fresh wine into that old skin because what's going to happen? You fill it up with new wine. That wine's not finished expanding. It's, it's still fermenting. And so he's saying what's going to happen is eventually it's going to break the bottle, the wine skin. It's going to explode because the wine is, is fermenting, expanding, and it doesn't have anywhere to go. The skin can't stretch anymore. So you don't put new wine, fresh wine, into old skins. Because if you do, the wine skins break, and the wine is spilled, you've, you've wasted it, and you've wasted the skins. The skins are ruined. So what do you do? He says you put new wine, fresh wine, into new wine skins. And both are preserved. Not, not the new and the old, by the way. He's not saying, you do this, then the old and the new are preserved. No, he's saying, you put new wine in new wineskins, and both the wineskin and the wine are preserved. You've got a good match. I mean, if you had a tear in a new piece of cloth for some reason, first day you wear it and you tear it, you could, you could use a new piece of cloth to patch that up, and presumably they would uh, shrink together. But you can't do that to an old cloth. You can't put new wine in old wine skins. You put new wine in new wine skins. Now, all that is pretty easy to understand. The analogies are easy to understand. The question is, what is Jesus talking about? How is He applying this? To what is He applying this? Um... In all the years that I've heard this passage dealt with, different people in different denominations, you know, coming from different viewpoints, uh, it, it, it seems I've never heard an answer that is entirely satisfactory. So, um, I, I proceed with fear and trembling here. I, I promise you I have no... Desire, and this is what is, is, uh, makes it so um, difficult, have no desire to misrepresent God's truth. But let me show you, and some of this that I'm going to tell you now still nevertheless goes, uh, is in agreement with what most commentators uh, say. Um, even though, I'm not sure it fully said it, but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna uh, ask for God's help and and uh, here here's what I think Jesus is saying. Let's let's go back for just a moment, a few minutes we have have left here. <clears throat> and I, I made this point earlier. The, the, here, the, first of all, who's the question coming from? 
It's coming from ascetics. Two different kinds of ascetics. That is, people who were committed to a, a, a certain um, outward form of righteousness. This is how they viewed religion. It, it, it's, it, it is expressed outwardly. Now, I would say also that, yes, you know, re- religion, I'm talking about true religion, not, not a, any kind of phony, hypocritical form uh, necessarily, but true religion is expressed outwardly. But I think they were inclined to think, as we are today, if we're not careful, that the outward form itself embodied righteousness. In other words, that's, that's what defined righteousness. So, in other words, we could, we could say it like this. Let's put it in the form of a question. How, how can I be righteous? Well, here's what you do fast. Fast a couple times a week. Make sure you go through the ceremonial washing before you eat. Not, not just washing your hands to kill germs, but the Pharisees, it was a ceremonial thing. You, you make sure that you go through the washings before you eat. Um, you don't do any work on the Sabbath, even if it's a work of mercy. You know, saving somebody's life or something. Righteousness was in the work. I think that's a form of old wine, to, to use the metaphor. That's the, that's the perverted form. Um, in other words, you're, it's like the Pharisees taking, uh, j- just taking the law of God and perverting it, taking it to unreasonable extremes and saying, this is righteousness. And so Jesus comes along, as we saw uh, back in chapter 5, I think it was, and He says, no, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees or else you'll never enter. The kingdom of God. You know why? Because they were missing it. What they were calling righteousness was nothing but unrighteousness. But then, too, you also have the disciples of John here. And again, I assume, because I don't think I have any reason not to, I assume that their motives are right. Because these are disciples of John who is a follower in one sense of Jesus Christ, in one sense of predecessor. He, he, he came to announce the coming of Christ, prepare the way of the Lord. So I'm going to assume their motives are right. And they're doing these religious things, outward expressions, with right motives. But I think, again, there's, there's a form of old Wine there, because Jesus is bringing into the picture new revelation. Now, if, well, I can't get too deep into this, but if you, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, you will notice there is progressive, uh, that is, the nature of, of God's revelation is that it's progressive. He reveals a little at a time, line upon line, precept upon precept, and you walk all the way through the Old Testament, getting a little more, a little more, and a little more, and then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus comes on the scene, and then you've got the fullness, and when we understand all that the Old Testament was talking about, and little by little was opening up 
to us. So, the nature of revelation, that is God making Himself known. That's all I mean by, by revelation. He's revealing Himself. The nature of revelation is that uh, it's progressive. And so, there's a, there's, a, there's a transition beginning here from new to old. Even in the context of legitimate, true religion, there's a change taking place. Under the Old Covenant, much of true worship did consist of outward things. Now they, let me just say it this way. They were required. Okay, The Lord told them, you worship in a certain place, and you worship in certain ways, and, of course, too, um, it was always required, though not uh, the requirement wasn't met, but it was always required that their heart be in it. In other words, they would have affection, true affection for God. But he, 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 he dealt with an ethnic, certain ethnic group and he told them how to worship, where to worship, and that's what they knew. Now, the Pharisees took that to some unreasonable extremes, but then there were godly people who had a better understanding Understanding that it was to be done out of love, true love for God, yet this, this form of worship was still all that they knew. Where do you meet? In the temple. What do you do? Sacrifices to atone for our sin. Why do you do that? Because we're sinners. Sacrifice is required. It's, it's for the covering of our sin. Now, Jesus comes on the scene. He's not he's not he's not changing the truth. The truth doesn't change. It's 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 eternal. He says again, Matthew 5, um, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. He's not destroying the truth. He is making changes. He's bringing things to greater light. So, for example, when he meets the woman at the well, he says to her, the time is coming when you'll worship, not, not in this mountain, either at Jerusalem. In other words, time is coming when the geographical location of worship is not going to matter. And he says to her, the time is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. So it's not merely outward form. It's true spiritual worship to God. Now, let me go back to where I started before we close. What, what is the new wine? Well, it's, it's the bringing in of the, the kingdom of God. Jesus is making known. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. All through the Sermon of the Mount, we saw characteristics of kingdom heirs, how they live. There's a newness about it. Something, something new is happening. It's no longer about one particular ethnic group. It's no longer about location. 
It's no longer about outward form. Let me illustrate that this way. Where in the New Testament can you turn for instructions on order of service? We don't have it, do we? You can find it in the Old Testament. They were told exactly how to worship. Where do you go in the New Testament to find that? How is the church supposed to conduct what we're doing right now? What's the proper order of service? What's the proper location? What's the proper building? Does the building have to look a certain way? What's the proper music? New or old? Contemporary? Traditional? And if you say traditional, does it have to be from the 1920s or from the 1730s? Say, we like the old hymns best. Which ones? The ones from the 1600s? Or the ones from the 20th century? Or should we go all the way back and just sing psalms like they did in the Old Testament and in the early church? How traditional do we want to be? Well, I think by implication here, and I'm quoting, uh, I think it was D.A. Carson um, that said, the church should always be contemporary. Always. We don't live in the 1500s or the 1930s. We live in 2011. Had to think for a moment there because I forget what year it was. So there's always a freshness to truth and true worship. It spans the ages and it spans cultures and it spans across customs. So I think what Jesus is simply saying is there's a transition happening here and there's something new going on here. And and the, the, you, you can't put the new into the old. We, we can't take the kingdom of God and make it fit in the traditional forms of worship. And He's showing them by His fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, what the nature of the kingdom is all about. It's about fellowship with Him. Not about fasting per se, washing your hands, changing clothes, eating some meats, refusing others, drinking wine, not drinking wine. In fact, in Romans 14, Paul says, the kingdom of God not about meat and drink. Right? But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness. True righteousness. Not a, not a manufactured righteousness. Not, not the keeping of the traditions of men. But the righteousness of Christ applied to us. Or in other words, us being brought into right relationship with God based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And peace. Peace with God. Cessation of war. Restoration. And joy. Joy in His presence. Jesus says this is the time not for mourning, but for feasting. Because 
The bridegroom is here. This is true religion. Fellowshipping with God. It's not about pews. It's not about pulpits. It's not about steeples. It's not about bricks and mortar. It's not about what day you worship, what time you worship, what style songs you sing, whether you have a piano or a guitar. It's about fellowship with God. In His presence is fullness of joy. That's the new wine. And like the wine and the wine skins, truth, if you're committed to truth, if you adhere to truth, the truth of God's Word, it has a way of exploding traditions. that are man-made and man-centered. True worship is about God. God. Would you stand, please? We're just going to close with a word of prayer. Um, Brother Carl, if you don't mind, would you pray, please? This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.